Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation. Today we have Sheila Bird Carmichael. She is an expert on standards and choice-based education reform, assisting local, national, and international organizations with education policy, research, uh, implementation of reform initiatives, working on development of, of curricula, standards, and assessments in the K-12 world. From 1996 to 1998, Ms. Carmichael was the Deputy Director of California's Academic Standards Commission. It was established to develop standards for the state's uh, K-12 public schools. Uh, before that, she was an English teacher who taught in the D.C. public schools. She taught in Japanese public schools and in the IB program in Italy. That's the International Baccalaureate program. She published a, a children's book in 2018 called More Than Gold about the, uh, the California gold rush. So uh, welcome, welcome, Sheila. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having me. All right. Well, you're, you're, you're the expert. You're going to tell us about what's going on in, in the K-12 world, uh, particularly in, in terms of a particular turn that you said you've made recently. I mean, you've been deeply involved in some of the most important initiatives, uh, national and state level initiatives, such as Common Core and charter schools. Uh, you were at the Fordham Institute for, for a while, which is one of the, one of the point people on a lot of these reforms, but there's been a little bit of turn in your thinking about the kinds of schools that are drawing your attention more than any right now. What would you want to tell us about that? Sure. So it's interesting, the different perspectives that I've had to have over the years, first as a student, obviously, and then as a teacher, as you mentioned, for many years, and then working in the education policy reform world, and then, and probably very late in life, uh, becoming a parent of a child. There you go. That can change, that can change things. It certainly did for me. Changed, changed a lot. Um, and suddenly I found myself like a cobbler who couldn't find shoes for her daughter. Well, I live in a, a small town in Virginia, semi-rural, um, where there's not a lot of choice in education. There's um, a, a several small Christian schools. There are uh, just a handful of public schools because the population isn't that large. Um, and an independent uh, Episcopalian co-ed school, um, where my daughter, uh, for reasons really of convenience and geography and a number of various reasons and, and, but, and because of reputation, she started at a school at the co-ed Episcopalian school. Um, and what struck me about that school and really many of the other schools that I visited subsequently when I found myself disappointed with the curriculum there, um, is is how uninterested all of these schools are in in curriculum. In curriculum, now you know a lot of a lot of our people they're not they're not they're not experts in education. When you say curriculum specifically, what do you mean? So it's very simply put, when I would visit schools for her, I would say, so what do you expect my daughter to know and be able to do? That's the that's the terminology in our education policy world, right? Of, of standards. Um, in state standards, what, what what do we want kids to know and be able to do at each grade level? And I would say that I would ask them that question in a in a pretty casual way, and expecting that they would know what I meant. And what really surprised me is that I I would get blank stares from from the people who were not just you know in the in the leadership of schools, but even at the classroom level. They and they would sort of stammer and say, "Well, we use this." math program and we use these this English basal reading program, which are those English textbooks that your head textbooks anthologies of of um, different types of texts that your kids Sh Sheila, Sheila. Isn't isn't that the most important question? 
<laughs> well, you'd think so. Uh, and, and, you know, and where I live, it's it, as I said, it's rural. And I, you know, I reached the point where I said to my husband, I said, you know, they look at me as if I've walked into the tractor supply store and asked them where the brassiers are. You know, they, 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 they honestly, they, they, they can't understand why I'm so curious and I want so much information about what my child's going to know and be able to do, especially when you want, when they want you to write a check for it. So, um, it, it became very frustrating. And I, for a number of reasons, I, um, had remembered someone told me that there was something, a classical school in a town north of here, about 30 minutes north of where I live. And, and I had forgotten about it. And so I, I finally went to visit the school, researched it, found it, went to visit the school, um, on the second to last day of school last year, um, and was so happy and and my heart was so warmed because when I asked the question, they had they knew exactly what they wanted their kids to know and be able to do. They were very confident about about their answer and very happy to tell you all about it and to show you the work that the kids were able to do um, as a result of what they what they laid out as their expectations. And I thought to myself, I, I can't believe this has been 30 minutes north of me all these years and, and uh, I didn't know it. She's now in fourth grade. So she started there at the uh, Redeemer Classical School this past September. And it's it's really been, it's been life-changing. Um, I, I have found that she really sort of languished she really was um had become un unhappy wasn't really even sleeping well last year at school during school now she sleeps like a dead hog she wakes up happy every morning she's wants to be prepared for school she comes home in the afternoon she she know she is happy to tell me what she's learning about um it's a content rich liberal arts education focused on what i would call the transcendent um, and that's the thing that I think is missing from certainly from our, our public schools uh, primarily, but even from the schools that ostensibly should care about the transcendent in, in other Christian schools, I, I, I didn't get that sense. So I, I feel like I finally come home and that, and that I'm with a family of people that, that get it and that share my passion for a content rich uh, liberal arts education. Does, does your, would your daughter talk in terms of the transcendent or is it more implicit that there's just a, a, a moreness about what she's learning than than just you know the lesson you know the, the assignment so absolutely she would she wouldn't be able to tell you that that's for sure um, but she would tell you that she understands that they focus on the good, the true, and the beautiful. So those are the those are the three you know uh, they'll, they'll sound familiar to you um, transcendent ideas that 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 they focus on. That's the motto of the school. Um, and she she would be able to tell you what the teachers expect and what's expected of her, and that they're allowed to talk about their faith, um, even though they're people of faith, all, many different kinds of Christian faith and some people, um, who are, who are not religious at the school, um, because of its academics. And, um, it's just in the water, uh, that they're allowed to talk about, um, the creator, like in, in art, for example, um, they can, they did talk about the fact that we are creative because of our creator, the way he created us. Um, but so it's, it's, it's subtle, but it's but it's constant and it's heartfelt and it's, it's um, 
discernible, certainly to 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 an adult uh, in the room. I, obviously, the kids can't talk about it that way. But yeah, yeah. You, you know, when I was looking at schools for for my son, middle schools, uh, and and high schools afterwards, I I would just go directly to the school's website. I would go directly into curriculum or academics, however they would categorize it. I would go to English, and I would simply look at the books that they assigned. This was my first measure of the school. What are the books that you are asking your 8th, ninth, and 10th graders to read? Well, what do you think of that? Is, is that good advice for our listeners, our parent listeners? Um, I would say it's a great start if a school even does that. My experience is that most schools don't publish much of anything about their curriculum on their websites. You really have to pull teeth to get them to even tell you. And, and in many cases, they'll, they'll tell you that the books change from year to year if they themselves don't have a sort of purposeful, intentional, confident um, scope and sequence that they're following. So right there, that's a bad sign. Oh, yeah. If, if you can't find the books that they want the kids to read, one, it means that, well, maybe they don't really care that much about which specific books they will read. Two, yeah, it changes. It fluctuates. So we, we don't want to we don't want to be too, too rigid about that. But it, it to me, it's a sign that, well, the, the curriculum really doesn't doesn't matter, at least at least the content side of the curriculum. They'll talk about the skills, you know, the reading comprehension strategies, the critical thinking and, and so on. But when we get down to the actual things, uh, is, is it that they don't they don't really care about? I mean, that they're, they're kind of indifferent or actually do you sense a resistance to being too prescriptive in, in any way? Oh, maybe it's a little bit somewhere in between. I think that um, for the most part, most educators and administrators, certainly in the public schools and even in a lot of the private schools I looked at, um, have been taught to believe that skills are the only things that matter now. That we can, you know, we 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 can look anything up that we want, but what what's important? And I think it started even as far back as, you know, the '80s. What's important is that we learn how to learn and that. You, and and not what we learn, just just how to learn. Um, and I think that they that's the way they've been taught. It's what they believe, and they they believe that the content is sort of irrelevant, or that it, or that somehow it's going to it's going to come um, mysteriously uh, in the course of trying to just teach a skills based curriculum. Now, now, Sheila, when you came up. Did you believe in the sort of the skills, skills oriented, skills most important approach? <laughs> uh, as a student or a teacher? Well, in, in your in your early in the early years as an educator and and uh, and even as a consultant. Huh, it's an interesting question because I was an English major. I was introduced myself as a recovering English major. Um, I. <laughs> And I and my you know my inclination when I got started in the world of teaching and and certainly in the, in the policy world subsequent to that was that it, English as my area of you know expertise um, there were skills that were important in English but they but that you could you could name them and you could describe them in far greater detail than you would see in the typical state standards of, of the nineties. So for example, um, you know, students will 
learn to love a variety of genres of literature. They will just they will read a lot of different types of literature. And I would always say, well, what which which books? <laughs> which <laughs> books? Predicate? What are the books? What are the books? And uh, people people generally were just you know we've been fighting this battle for many many years. Um, they they. They're, they're hesitant to get specific either because they're not confident themselves, I think, in what they think those things should be, or they don't know what those things should be. They feel more comfortable knowing that they're going to teach children how to do something rather than making a decision for them about what they should learn about or think critically about. Um, I, I think it's just sort of, I hate to say this, but sort of intellectually beyond where a lot of educators are because of the way they're trained. My own experience, you know, in in being educated was that there were very specific texts and uh, that you, that we had to read and we had to read them for a reason. So it was, it was hard. It's been hard for me for, for many years fighting that battle in the standards, in the standards world. Um, I think things are ch- shifting a little bit. I mean, I see signs of, of, of change that make me, that encourage me, actually. Well, y- you and I met, you, you may not remember this too well, but about, well, you, you and I met about, I think about 15 years ago, we were both called in to a big committee by this group Achieve, these, these national standards uh, developers. And the idea was that they must have had 25 of us in the room to hammer out uh, some ELA standards for nine, grades 9 through 12. And we were, you know, working on, okay, we've got certain, you know, writing, grammar uh, uh, skills and so on. But then at the, uh, at one point we turned to the idea of, okay, what, are the, what, what do we want to read? What is, are we going to have a recommended reading list? And boy, the tension in the room just went sky high and there were two people in the room who said, well, of course we need a reading list. That was you and I. And you, you were actually much stronger because I was, in, I was fairly new to this education standards world. And I was amazed at the arguments that people were making against any reading list of any kind. People say it's never going to be diverse enough. Uh, one person, uh, a dope from the college board, he was arguing that there is no reason that you can select one author over any other to be on this list. It's a complete relativism about making choices. And the, I, re, I remember a line, here's how you put it, it says, why, why do we have to be such wimps when it comes to making these kinds of choices? And I was thinking, all right, uh, you know, I, that, that's what I want to hear. But, you know, other people saying, we have to remember that, that a reading list is always a political act. That was, that was what one person said in the room. And I'm just going, oh, my goodness, you people, you, 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 do you just not care? I mean, and so the, my question to you, Sheila, why were they so doggone nervous, anxious, r- recalcitrant over any kind of reading list? What's the problem? You know, I... I, I... I, I still struggle with that question. It's just, and I especially wonder about it because even then, even 15 years ago, we had seen success in states like the, the two states that had the courage to do it, uh, Massachusetts and Indiana, and they weren't even re- required reading lists. They were just suggested. Um, and even those, those had been controversial, but they had gotten them through. And, in the, and student achievement in those states had, was improving, uh, you know, remarkably, especially in Massachusetts. So, you know, it, 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 it it surprised me, but really, it, it just I think has grown out of the the politically correct um, f- 
frame of mind that we've had for so long now that, you know, to, that to suggest to somebody that um, that anybody has a better idea than anybody else of what students, you know, should read um, is is just it's it's a, a grieving. It's it's uh, presumptuous. It's um, uh, you know pedantic. So. Um, you know, that, that every, everybody should have a choice. Students should have a choice. Teachers should have a choice. Um, but, but there's no, you know, obviously no way to be sure of the consistency and the quality of the instruction or the materials unless you lay down some parameters. That's why we're there, right? That, that's why we're the experts. That's why we spent all those years in school studying and, and understanding things. I mean, isn't that what we're paid to do, to be people who do a little bit of prescribing now and then? Well, yes, yes. And I, I often, I, I talk to my husband about this a lot because, um, and especially as the Common Core was being developed because he is a physician, he's a surgeon. And um, we, we, we would discuss often the parallels between what was happening with Obamacare and Obamacore. <laughs> And the fact that, you know, he would say, yeah, it sounds an awful lot like, you know, I can tell people to quit smoking, but uh, they don't quit smoking. And then they, you know, I say, I always tell them, I'll be happy to take out your other lung, you know, if, if you want to keep smoking. And But I'm going to tell you right now, you should quit smoking. And I would say the same thing. I'd say, well, you know, I would tell, I tell people in my, in my profession what I think they ought to do at their, in their schools or how they ought to write their curriculum. And, but if they don't, if they don't want to cross those lines, if they don't want to get that specific, um, I, 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 you know, I, I can't be surprised by the results. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, after the years of No Child Left Behind, this is a, the bigger question. After the years of No Child Left Behind, uh, which was so prominent on the national stage, and then the years in the in the teens of Common Core, which was so prominent and controversial, and the Obama administration got got involved in that. It seems to me that right now, very few national politicians are are talking about education reform at all. Am I correct about that? Oh, I think that's I think that's absolutely correct, and it's, and it's it's frightening. You hear a little bit more about it at the high, at the higher ed level, and I know you know more, much more about that than I do. Um, you hear every once in a while somebody will write an op-ed about you know the problem with with higher ed and the you know the um, safe spaces and the you know the fact that you can get an English degree at Yale without having to study Shakespeare. Um, but but yeah, it's it's um, it's it's fallen away. Is it, is it because of just there's been so much disappointment? I mean, ultimately, No Child Left Behind. Does does anyone claim No Child Left Behind was was a, a, a wonderful development? today what what people would say about no child left behind in a positive sense is that um like all, like anything good intentions but 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 i think it did it did actually change the k-12 education world in as much as now we really do feel responsible for educating all children and 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 getting data about how our students are doing that 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 is the good thing that came out of no child left behind that the unfortunate consequence was that the you know some of the liberal arts really got squeezed out of the curriculum people were so concerned about reading and math that they you know history the arts those sorts of things you know got squeezed out as a result now they i think there were gains at the low end after no child left behind right the 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 bottom the bottom cohorts did show some real improvement but this is why the latest NAEP results were a bit of a shock because 
there we saw those gains of the lower end reverse, right? They, we got some significant loss among, among the, there were students being left behind. Let, let's put it that way. Is that, were those scores that came out just a few weeks ago, were those scores, when you take those in a, as an indictment of Common Core? Because those, those are the students that are now, they've been through several years of Common Core and we, we got some real disappointment there. Yeah, you know, I think what happens, Mark, honestly, is that a lot of people who may or may not have ever taught or may or may not have been in a school in a long time make policy, whether it's No Child Left Behind or Common Core. And in the case of Common Core, again, a well-intentioned effort to, to sort of systematize, um, you know, the what we want everybody to know and be able to do, because the complaint about No Child Left Behind was that Every, the states set their own standards and everybody has different benchmarks. And even in where states achieve gains, the gains weren't real. So the Common Core was supposed to fix all that because it was going to be one set of standards that all the states would use. But I think what happens is the, at that high level, at that 30,000 foot policy level, it may seem like a change. But at the, on the ground in classrooms, teachers are just they're still doing what they were taught to do in, in ed schools or what they think is best um, as long as they can get away with it. And to the extent that they have accountability, especially in public schools, it's it's all about, you know, well, I'll do whatever I want until I have to stop and prepare kids for the test. And, and so obviously kids are not going to do well on any kind of test with that, with that mentality. I think if you build their knowledge and you teach them well, they're going to do well on any on almost any kind of test you give them, but but it's it's the attitude of the administrators and the teachers in the building that that has that that persists in spite of whatever the thirty foot thousand thirty thousand foot policy is that's handed down to them. Is this one reason why the classical school movement seems to be growing? That parents are starting to want a little more prescription. Uh, in the in the curriculum, there's becoming aware of curriculum. Let the books really do matter, or are there other reasons why the classical school movement is is growing? Um, I think it's probably both. I mean, I think there are people like myself and and many others that I know who 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 really felt that uh, that they they had to find a place where there was a culture in which they wanted their children to exist every day. And, and, and so those are the people who really who are, are seeking out, you know, what I would call schools that are confident about focusing on the transcendent. Um, and then there are people who just want a better education. They want they, um, they, they hear you know, it's, it's, the hearsay is that certain schools are performing better. Their kids you know, they come out of the classical schools, public high schools and they're immediately placed into Latin three instead of, you know, first year Spanish. So I, I, you know, I think it's both, but I think there's going to, there continues to be, I think, more data coming out that kids who are in classical schools are performing um, academically better than regular public schools and maybe even some charter schools. And, and the more data we hear about that, I think, I think the movement is going to grow even more. So your daughter's in fourth grade. She's in classical school. What are the the things that she's been studying this year that really impress you? So what I what I love primarily is that the curriculum is based on history. So they they read they they basically start uh, history of the world uh, with um, books written by Susan Weisbauer called the story of the world um, in in first grade. 
and go chronologically. And then all of the English, the, the literature that they do, the art that they look at, the, the music that they study, every, everything else is predicated upon where they, you know, what era of history they're studying. So there's a real purposeful integration. So for example, in the early in the year, because she came in in fourth grade, they were um, at the point uh, sort of the turn of the century, turn of the 19th century, and we're studying the Crimean War, and so she had to s- memorize the charge of the Light Brigade. <laughs> wait, wait, the, the whole thing? The whole thing. And she. And wow, I, the Valley of Death, the 600. Yes, yes. But, but, but what really shocked me is how much she enjoyed doing it and how how easy it seemed to be for her to do it. Um, same thing, Gettysburg Address. She, she, when studying the Civil War, she had, she had to memorize in fourth grade the entire Gettysburg Address and can recite it with, with meaning, with feeling. I, I, think, I, I, I think it is oppressive. I think it is restrictive to have kids do this rote memorization. You're turning them into robots, and I think they should be able to write their own poems and, and read those, okay? It is such a delight to see how happy and how proud she is at some level. She knows that she is learning about some things that matter, people who sacrificed for a cause, you know, regardless of, you know, those are two different wars, but (laughs) um, she gets that. You you know, my son, my son did uh, uh, Paul Revere's Ride uh, a couple of years ago, and you know, the kids, the kids love, they love the rhythm, they love the rhyme, they love being able to stand up and recite uh, uh, stanza after stanza. They feel the real accomplishment. They sit down with a big smile on their faces. And when you think about how many songs these kids memorize, of course they can memorize long poems. This isn't too much for them. Not at all. Not at all. Um, and they, th- they thrive on it. And the thing that I love about it, as I often have argued, you know, when, in other contexts, is once it's memorized, it's theirs, it's theirs for life. No one can ever take it away from them. They will always know that. They may forget bits and pieces of it, but it's uh, it's very powerful. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a movie you could show your daughter uh, with Errol Flynn from the 1930s. I think it was called The Charge of the Light Brigade. So <laughs> that's good. So that, but that's good. Memorization and and people people who you know who who, who put memorization down don't realize all the things that come out of memorizing a poem. One, you build your vocabulary. Two, if they recite before the class, you're developing the the speech, the projection, you're giving them demeanor and a bearing in order to stand in front of a group and and speak. And and finally, you have to get into another state of mind, right? You've got to get into the poet's head or the character's head in order to recount this poem the way the way it, it wants you it wants to be recounted that's a great thing for kids to do they're playing they're play acting and and so the the memorization and also a memory is a muscle right the more you use it the stronger it gets so that that sounds wonderful okay one more thing they're studying well the art is amazing uh they're doing actually uh the, uh, it was an neh program i think from long ago um that uh and Picturing America, and so there's giant-sized posters of um, of American painters um, paintings, 
uh, at the same time that they're they're learning in their art classes a very a very classical approach to learning uh, drawing based so they learn to draw uh, first before they go into other media um, so I think it's the integration of the art with the history and um, the focus on 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 actual um, you know basic content first and building that very slowly and pur- and purposefully. In Latin, for example, she's she's learning to diagram sentences and understanding English sentence structure because of what she's understanding about Latin and, and how how English derives many English words derive from Latin. So it's just it's so many things on so many levels. You, you know, what, what what is she going to do? Does this school go through eighth grade or twelfth grade? So it goes through eighth grade currently. Next year will be the first year that they have a high school. And by the way, they do call it the grades K through five are the grammar school. Six through eight is the logic school. And the high school will be the rhetoric school. So they're very focused on the trivium, which is um, and very intentional about that. Uh, I think this, this as, as more parents find out about the curriculum of these schools and how this is just going to benefit your daughter when she gets to the next level, when she goes to college. Her, her teachers are going to, her professors are going to love her for her formation. But I think the parents, you could almost be utilitarian about it, uh, not talk about this is a great formation for my, for my daughter's knowledge and character and her spiritual well-being, but also it's really going to give you an advantage when you go to college because if you go into those college classes, many of which are general ed requirements in U.S. history or politics or, or whatever. If you have read the books that are going to be the background knowledge for a lot of these materials in that classroom and the student sitting next to you hasn't, you've got a big leg up and it's going to show uh, at that level because the teacher is not going to take the time, too much time, to kind of coach those students who didn't get the formation to bring them up to par. College teachers don't don't function that way. Uh, they see the kids a few hours a week. Oftentimes, they never get to know the kids' names. And so they either, uh, the kids in the room either get it when the teacher just makes a passing reference to the Renaissance, or, or they're a little bit, they're a little bit lost. And so I, I love hearing uh, about stories about what your what your daughter's learning. I love hearing the the classical school in this area. Is it growing? Yes. So um, what, that's one of the things that also uh, draw drew me to it. Having served on accreditation teams and school evaluation teams, um, it was almost as if what I learned about how the school had grown was precisely the way you would expect a charter school that was doing a great job. Um, I mean, they started in a church basement. They grew the, the student population. They, they rented a school, old public school building. Now they own the public school building. I think this is the first year that they have two kindergartens and two first grades. So it's 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 really growing and thriving in the way that the founders intended it to. And they have a strategic plan and 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 fundraising plans for the future, so that the high school will you know eventually will have many more children than it will in its first year, which I think will be tough. Any any uh, any resentment from the public school world in the area at this? I honestly don't know. I think if anything, the public, at least the public high schools and, and even the middle schools, from what I hear, if students, uh, for whatever reason, you know, either you know, have to send their kids to the to the um, public schools for financial reasons or geographic reasons, 
they find that the kids who have been to the, the classical school do so much better um, that they're, I think they're, they're probably, like you said about the college professors, I think they're, they're happy that they have students who are, who are so capable. 10 years from now, this movement is going to be going strong, stronger and stronger than ever. I have, I have great hope that it will be. The more I learn about the networks of classical schools and the different types of, of, of um, networks that there are and support mechanisms for them, associations that are, that are providing resources, publishers who are publishing more materials, even teacher training programs. Um, I understand now that St. John's College, where I did my graduate work in Annapolis, is, um, is offering um, a teaching certificate, a master's degree in teaching liberal arts. So, I mean, which is just amazing to me. So even it's, it's wonderful to know that there's some education schools as small as the programs may be now. Um, I think there may be more and more of them, especially, you know, if you look at the success of programs like what Great Minds is doing, the Wit and Wisdom ELA program that, that, um, that, that I've worked on. So I have in full disclosure, but it's, it's um, heavily, it's content rich. It's, it's not a basal reader. It's actual texts and kids are, it's integrated with history and science. The more popular those kinds of programs become, the more schools need teachers who can teach that kind of um, a curriculum. So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged to think that um, we, we, may see, we may see an uptick. On that note, thank you, Sheila Bird Carmichael. You're welcome, Mark. Great to talk to you.